Today's scripture reading is from Daniel 7. We will read from Daniel 7, 13 to 14. If you'd like to follow along in our Red Bibles in the pews, this is page 745. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, very, if you guys read ahead or are familiar with this chapter, um, it's, it's very different than uh, what we've been talking about in the first six chapters. Uh, starting in chapter seven, uh, things get a little bit uh, challenging. And you'll notice that the, the style of writing changes between chapter six and seven. And chapter seven is where we enter what we call apocalyptic literature. And um, for those of you who are into this, uh, you'll enjoy that. And if, for those of you who aren't, um, too bad, I guess. Um, <laughs> but um, chapter 7 is, is a lot of uh, illustration, more, definitely more abstract. And in the first six chapters of Daniel, you'll notice that it was written more as a historical narrative. It's a, it's a story that's, that's really, really easy to follow. And, and to like uh, track with. And so most of the first six chapters that we just covered um, were written in the third person. And you'll notice that Daniel moves into the first person when he enters into chapter seven. And then he talks more about dreams and visions and, and definitely just using these images to attempt to describe the indescribable. Just, he's, he's using this apocalyptic literature style of writing to express beyond what he he can within the limitations of his communication. So for example, if you think back 2,000 years and somebody dreamt of the internet, how would you write about that? You know, you don't have the vocabulary for it, you don't have anything surrounding that, you don't have any way to express what that is. 200 years ago, 100 years ago, you wouldn't be able to do this. And so here, Daniel is receiving these dreams that are like thousands of years ahead. And so you can just imagine this is the way that he can write these kind of abstract thoughts down on paper. I mean, there's nothing that he can kind of put together. Just like 2,000 years ago, somebody writing about the internet. You couldn't do that. Now, something that people often jump toward, forward to when looking or reading apocalyptic literature is that they automatically go into like fortune telling or they go into like telling the future and that's what they want to get caught up in and what different things mean and who's involved in what and then they start timetabling everything. Well, this is going to happen after this or before this and they start putting all these things in place and these countries are involved and all this kind of stuff. That's not the point Daniel is trying to make in his writing. He's not trying to point out all of these different things. Daniel's apocalyptic writings aren't for us to figure out the future and what all of those things mean. When he writes apocalyptically, he's writing for us to trust in God no matter what comes our way. 
that's kind of the bottom line, right? That, that you, we have to trust in God no matter what happens, we have to trust in God. That all of these indescribable things that look so terrible, they're not out of God's control. That God is sovereign, that he's still on the throne. And so that's what the first six chapters of Daniel were all about. You know, when we're talking about Babylonian captivity, Medo-Persian empire coming into power, and what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fiery furnace, what happened to Daniel in the lion's den. All these things are pointing to the same thing, that God was in control of that history, chapters 1 through 6. God is in control today, and God will be in control of tomorrow, chapter 7 and beyond. It's interesting to me how people get so into future tripping. And they start talking about all that stuff and they get so excited about all that stuff. And I wonder why that is because when I read Daniel and I look at Daniel's kind of reaction and response to all of this stuff, he is terrified. He's not excited about this stuff. He's not like, oh yeah, I can't wait. And you look at verse 15. As for me... Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. You jump to verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, and I kept the matter in my heart. See, he wasn't like fascinated or intrigued with these things. He was really disturbed at these things. Let's jump into verse 1 here. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now, the chronology of chapter 7 is really interesting because you'll notice that it takes place during the reign of Belshazzar, which back in chapter 5, the guy died. So what this is saying is the events of chapter 7 are actually preceding chapter 5, Belshazzar's death. So it's kind of like looking back. Now, what's interesting about chapter 7 is that what Daniel is attempting to do is highlight this chapter. And the way that he does this is he starts Daniel by writing in Hebrew. Then towards the end of chapter 6, he switches to Aramaic. He writes in chapter 7 in Aramaic, and then it switches back to Hebrew again. So what he's attempting to do is he's trying to make chapter 7 really stick out from all the other chapters. He's making it show you, like, I'm making a huge change here. I'm making a huge change in literary style. I'm making a huge change in language. I'm making a, a big a pivot here. I'm, I'm showing something different here. I'm going back in time now. I'm going back to before chapter 5, Belshazzar's death. And so pay attention here. And so he's really making a point out of this chapter 7. And it seems that the four metals, these four empires mentioned back in chapter 2, are akin to the four beasts described in chapter 7. So what we can do is apply what we learned in chapter 2 to chapter 7. So something to keep in mind as we're moving forward. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So in all of this disorder and this chaos that Daniel's seeing in his dreams and his vision, he still sees that God is in control. Because you notice that the winds of heaven stirred up the sea, and out of the sea came these four beasts. So what is this showing? It's showing that God is in control of even this chaos. Because he's in heaven, he's the one stirring this up, and out of that comes these beasts. That God is not surprised by these beasts, because he's actually the one that is stirring this up. And so when things seem chaotic, when they seem crazy, just know that God's not caught off guard. 
He's still in control. God is the one who gave, back in chapter 1, the Israelites to the Babylonians. God is the one in heaven stirring up the sea. He's also, also the one, Jesus, who calms the sea. Verse 3, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. Now we're told in verse 17 that these four beasts are four kings who arise out of the earth. And it seems to me that these are the same empires that are mentioned in chapter 2. The Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Now people have different beliefs on these things. Not everyone agrees, but beasts are very commonly used in the Bible to describe nations, powers, kingdoms, empires. That's often what they're used for. Verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and, a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Now we know that beasts are used as symbols for countries. So for the United States, we have the bald eagle. right? And for Russia, they have the bear. And so different, different things, different symbols for different countries. Now in the book of Jeremiah... Nebuchadnezzar is described with a lion and an eagle. Now, the lion is the most powerful land animal, the eagle the most powerful air animal, and Nebuchadnezzar was lifted from the ground. His wings were plucked off, and we also read and know that Babylon had this symbol of a lion with its wings on its gates. So, I think this is Babylon. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Now the Medo-Persian, Medo-Persian, one side was stronger than the other, the Persian side. Persia was greater than Media. And this large animal, this empire, devoured what was in front of it. Verse 6, so I believe that's the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse 6, after this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. So leopards are a very swift, a very dangerous animal. This one had wings uh, symbolizing that it's very quick. Four heads that it sees in all directions. And so why do I think Greek Empire? Because one of the greatest conquerors of all time, Alexander the Great, is there, who defeated the Medo-Persians very quickly, very decisively. He controlled an entire region within 10 years, starting when he was in his early 20s and took over the entire known world at 32 years old. And then he died. Dominion was given to it, verse 6. Dominion given by God, but also at 32 when he seemed unstoppable and no one could stop him. Taken away. Nobody could stop Alexander the Great. No empire, no, no power at all could stop him. But God is in charge. He's the one that gives. He's the one that takes away. He is God. And just like God giving and taking away today and into the future, 
Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So this creature is not like a leopard, not like a, a lion, not like an eagle, not like a bear. This is really different. Like, what, what's going on here? And so... When we're going down the empires and we're talking um, Babylonians, Medo-Persians, Greek, and then Romans is what's usually thought of here. Why Romans? Well, the Romans ruled this really, really vast empire. And these ten horns are representing a very, very powerful beast because most beasts have two horns. And so this is a really powerful beast, and these beasts seem to be getting increasingly more powerful. Verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. So this little horn is the most deceptive of them all. You would think like, well, if it's the most powerful, it would be the biggest horn, but it's really deceptive. But yet through all of this, God is still on the throne. And this little horn is a personified evil, you know, eyes, and it's being personified. And so these exiles, Daniel's audience is a group of exiles taken from their homes in Jerusalem, taken into Babylonian captivity, and they're reading this stuff, they're hearing this stuff. And so are we here today. And it's important for us to know this when the kingdoms of the world seem to be more powerful than what's happening to the church or to your life as a believer in Christ. It's important for us to know that the meaning of our lives is directly tied to this story of Daniel 7 in that God is in control. God is sovereign. Now, the thing is, is do we believe this? Or is this just something that we say? Do we really believe that God is in control, even though all this stuff is happening all around us that is out of our control? But do we believe that God is still in control? Verse 9, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Again, a ton of symbolism that's going on here that, that Daniel is describing what he is indescribable. And so here, God is working behind the scenes in these first eight verses, right? The first eight verses that we talked about, he's behind the scenes. But, but we step into verse 9, and God is right there. That Jesus, the King, will come to reign. Does Jesus Christ reign in our lives? Is our rebellion subdued or are we acting it out are we secure that no matter what evil empire or evil person we face that we're confident in Christ that he's in control is God truly sovereign over everything that is going on in our lives moving on to these next verses here from 9 to verse 14 they they give us a vision of God with with three aspects of this one great event that isn't instantaneously but it's this long running event 
that, that runs along this significant period of time talking about the, the throne room of God in verses 9 and 10, talking about the destruction of the beast in verses 11 and 12, talking about the appearing of the one like the Son of Man in verses 13 and 14. And so it's this, this long discourse within these chapter, verses here. Now, of course, there are people who disagree with this interpretation, but this is where I land. And you can read up on other stuff if you want. Now, looking at verse 9 more closely, the Ancient of Days is in reference to God, and his seat is speaking of his position of authority. And when it's writing about his clothing is as white as snow, hair as pure wool, this is talking about God and his, his purity. When it's speaking of the throne of fiery flames, the wheel of burning fire, this is referring to God's place of judgment. Now moving on to verse 10. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Now this reference to thousands, 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 uh, I, I just don't think that uh, Daniel had a way of saying Google or whatever. Like This is how he's saying a lot. Right? And so verses 9 and 10 are a picture of God's authority, power, purity, judgment over all, and God will ultimately settle every account. That God's kingdom will ultimately prevail and all the oppression, all the injustice towards people, towards God's people, those things will be accounted for. The books will be opened. Nothing will be hidden. Everything will be shown. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horns was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. This is the second kind of image within this story, the, the, the destruction of the beast. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so this is that story that I'm talking to you about for these four beasts. The Persian Empire was many years ago, but this, they're destroyed. And this is also moving forward into a future time. And so the history of Babylonians, Medo-Persians, Greeks, Romans, that history played out, those oppressive empires, that played out. There was a time when all of them ruled, but then when history comes to an end, which it hasn't yet, we're still moving towards the future, God will ultimately execute judgment and justice. And we're still in that time. Verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all these peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Ancient of Days is in reference to God, the Son of Man is in reference to Jesus. Like a Son of Man is speaking about Jesus who is like a human being in that he is all that human beings as God's image bearers were made to be. But we failed to be. So Jesus is all that humans made in God's image were made to be but failed to be. Christ is the perfect man as to what was intended in creation. And so Jesus is the embodiment of what God intended for all humans. 
Paul referred to Jesus as the second Adam. Adam, first Adam, sinned. His dominion was lost, and he fell short of God's glory. Since that time, humanity has not been able to recover that dominion and has failed to be free from sin. So we're all flawed, we're all sinful, and we're in need of one who will come like a son of man, unlike Adam, Adam who failed, but like a son of man, Jesus, who succeeded by being the servant Adam was supposed to be, but he failed to be. Jesus reflects the glory of God by living in complete obedience to God and redeems the failures of the first Adam. Now you notice that Jesus came to the Ancient of Days, not from the Ancient of Days. Jesus went to heaven after his death. He, did, he resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven. And this is a picture of the coronation of Jesus Christ. That he was not created. He came to. He wasn't from. Where he was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom. Now you look back to Acts chapter 1. Jesus was taken back to the Father. And then how this correlates with the end of Matthew with the Great Commission. And how the prophecies of Daniel are mixed in here. And we have this message to deliver Jesus to the world. Whether it's Matthew 28, whether it's Daniel 7, whether it's in Acts 1. Now, going back to Daniel 7, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Again, this was a very anxious, alarming experience for Daniel, where everything until chapter 7 was in the third person, but he's in it in the first person here, and he asked for an interpretation because he's like, what in the world is all of this? And so we have verses 1 through 14, which were all descriptive, and then it isn't until verse 15 that we get interpretation, that this was a dream. It was apocalyptic. Daniel sees himself in the dream, first person. And so what apocalyptic literature does for us is it, it, it draws back the curtain. Right? It draws back the curtain that allows us to, to see that eschatological victory of God, the, the end game. It allows us to see the end results. Um, you know those people who want to know the ending before they watch the whole movie? Um, sometimes you're irritating. <laughs> they, they, they can't stand the suspense or they don't want to, they would want to know the end before so they, they'll read ahead or something or, or they'll fast, Netflix will go fast forward to the end and they, okay, that happened and then they can watch it, rewatch it again, like, bizarre. But this is kind of what's happening with Daniel. He's like given this, this preview, he's, the, the curtain's pulled back and he's able to see past. And this is what apocalyptic literature like Daniel, like Revelation, that's what it does for us. It allows us to see into the future. It allows us to see past what's going on. It allows us to see what has already been achieved over whatever forces are against God to let us know God is victorious. 
He's still in control. He's still on the throne no matter what is going on. You peel back the curtain and you can see he's still victorious. And there's a history to prove it to you guys. And so Daniel is showing, hey, remember when we were plucked out of Jerusalem in the Babylonian captivity? Remember when you were thrown into the fiery furnace? Remember when I was thrown into the lion's den? Remember when the Medo-Persians took over the Babylonians? And then fast forward from him, remember when the Greeks took over? Remember when the Romans took over? Remember when whatever's in the future? God was still always in control, no matter what. He was still always in control. And so even if it is a momentarily crippling of the community of faith, whatever we are going through in our own things, whether there's a lot of people in our world who are, are living under persecution as believers of Jesus Christ, and they need this. And perhaps you and I are going to need this at some point too to realize, you know what, this stuff is happening, but God is still in control. I mean, we can look back into our past and see the, the history books tell us of the empires that have come and gone, and yet God still reigns. So Daniel was given this privilege of this insight where he's pulling back the curtain so that he could see the end, which all of us are given this privilege now too. We're, Daniel 7 is pulling it all back, and we can see it. To see from his time, Daniel's time, to the return of Christ, which we're somewhere here. We're in the middle somewhere. I don't know where, but we're somewhere in the middle of that. And not as just someone outside looking in, but Daniel sees himself as a participant. He's in this, just like you and I are in this, and we are living what's happening, which is similar to what John's writings are in the book of Revelation in apocalyptic writing there as well. Now moving on to verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So we're told that these beasts are these empires, and the saints of the Most High will possess the kingdom forever. Hasn't happened yet. It is way over here. And so this is the interpretation of the dream and the vision. It, it, it just would have been really great if Daniel kind of just ended there. Thank you. Great. But no, Daniel's not like that. Daniel is this curious guy, and he goes on to question more this fourth beast here. I recognize bears and um, eagles and lions, and I don't know what this is. Ten horns? Never seen it. So verse 19, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So Daniel asked for more details on this fourth beast. And things just don't seem all that great for God's people at all. Now, we know the end game. The curtains pulled back. The end, ultimately, Christ prevails. But before that, it is full of conflict. It is full of challenges. And yes, the ultimate victory, the ultimate triumph is assured. It's predetermined. But war will be had with all the saints. 
throughout it all. You and me. And this little horn, this Antichrist figure, will prevail over all these saints. None of us will be able to overcome it. Isn't this encouraging news? I mean, isn't this just great? What this is a reminder of is the dimension that we currently live in, which is the not yet dimension, right? We, we are in a not yet dimension where billions and billions and billions of other people have lived before us and they're not here anymore. But we live in this not yet dimension from the history of humanity till the return of Christ is this not yet dimension that we're currently living in between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his return, which means that there's a lot of opposition, a lot of conflict that takes place before the return of Jesus Christ between his saints, like us, and the enemies of God. And so from all that time, the gospel will be contested. And it will appear as though the enemy is winning, like in the Babylonian captivity, like in the Medo-Persian Empire rule, like in the Greek rule, like in the Roman rule, like whatever is happening today. It will seem like enemies are winning, but the gospel is and will be contested where it appears the enemy is winning, but the gospel will ultimately be victorious at the end. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. His death, his resurrection, his ascension. Now, the author of Hebrews writes to us about this not yet dimension. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 7. You made him for a little while, uh, you, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is Jesus. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Keep all that in mind, not yet dimension. Let's jump into verse 23, Daniel 7. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. Now some commentators don't connect the beasts to kingdoms. And they believe the beasts are just a symbolic thing, that it's not empires, not anything like that. It's, it's, it's something totally different. They don't think the fourth kingdom is a literal empire kingdom power, which I disagree with. I do think that the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire. I still think that we still feel the effects of Roman Empire. That's for a different time to talk about that topic. But in verses 23 through 27 we do have to resist trying to interpret these ten horns as ten literal people or ten literal empires because I don't think that it's absolutely clear. Yes, it does say ten horns and out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. But I, I don't think this is something for us to be divisive over. I don't think this is something for us to be dogmatic about. 
that we actually just really need to see the big picture. We don't really need to know exactly who these three kings are because it's all just a guessing game. People have been wrong about it over and over again. So verse 25 here. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. There are many, many people, many good people who have tried to identify this little horn. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, your your church has probably tried to do this as well. Um, We won't. We, We won't do that. And there are many antichrists who have just come and gone, and we don't have to wait for this Antichrist because there are many who have existed and who exist now. There are many who persecute God's people. There are many who blaspheme God. But there will be a a final opposition, and this little horn represents that final, lawless, evil one to come against God. The lawless one will prevail over a time, a long time but not forever. And there will be this massive onslaught of evil against the saints of God, just as there has been throughout all of world history. Millions, billions of Christians have died over world history. But there will be a forever established kingdom of God with the destruction of this Antichrist. Now, Daniel 7 is a prophetic time between Daniel and Christ's return. One of the problems, I think, because of all this time that has elapsed is that we neglect evil. That we have people who refuse to believe that there is evil in the world even when it's really easy for us to see it. And sometimes we forget there are evil people and evil powers that lure people into a dark, lost eternity And so you hear things like, oh, I don't believe that people are inherently evil. People are generally good. Really? God, who has loved people in his son, Jesus, has been rejected. And one of our problems is that we don't believe that there is evil, or some people don't believe there's evil. And if we don't believe there's evil, then it's very easy not to believe in Jesus Christ who came to combat evil. Because you don't believe there's anything to combat. So therefore, why do we need that? Discipleship to Jesus is not easy because the enemies of God are real, And the evil is real, and we're combating against that all the time. And once we've given in to the idea that evil doesn't exist, then you look past Jesus, and there's no need for him anymore. And yet we continue looking to the powers of this world to solve all of our social ills and the things wrong with this world, and then we say things like there's no evil. 
I mean, isn't that weird? And so we look to governments, we look to people to solve their own problems, we look to all these other technology, instead of God, to resolve the wrongs of this world, which is a losing proposition, which is shown from the beginning of human history. Because it just hasn't worked. Ever. And who in this world is without fault? We all have faults. Some people make chapter 7 about all sorts of things. And you'll talk about, they'll talk about all this stuff, about all oh, this horn here, this little horn here, and this, all this stuff. I remember growing up in, in my tradition that people were talking about the ten horns as being uh, members of the EU. I don't know if any of you heard this, right? When the EU was like ten countries, like, here it is. Here's the Antichrist, it's the EU, and then the EU became 11 countries and 12 countries and 13 countries, and, like, and then it's like shrinking down, and like maybe Brexit, and it's leave. oh, it's going back, it's going to go back to 10, so it is them, and so it's going to go back to 10, and like all this kind of stuff, right? Maybe, I don't know. Does it matter? Ultimately, what matters is God is in control. He's sovereign. He's going to take it over. We know that we're going to face conflict. We know that we're going to face persecution. Ultimately, he wins. Ultimately, he's victorious. Ultimately, he delivers justice. So, God prevails, and the kingdom will be given to the image bearers of God. So, what is this all about then? If you are ever disheartened, discouraged, The hope is not in knowing who Little Horn is, and the hope is not in knowing who the Ten Horns are, but knowing that God has already won. He won on the cross, resurrection, and ascension. We will face all the conflict, but he comes back, and here he is triumphant. The story of triumph. He will deliver justice. That this isn't home for us. This whole space isn't home for us. And God has everything in control even when our life may seem out of control and everything around us seems out of control. But here he's making a declaration on the death of the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. In between that is this not yet dimension that we're living in and some of us are wondering what in the heck is going on in this world. But this is coming. Let's pray. Lord, for those of us who doubt, and at times all of us do, may you remind us of history, how you delivered God's people, your people, out of Egypt, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greek Empire, Roman Empire, whatever other things that are going on in our world today, that you are ultimately the victor over injustice. And so God, for those who don't know you, who have these doubts creeping in their head, these, these thoughts of you can't be real 
or that evil doesn't exist in the world. God, may you triumph over those false thoughts that people can submit themselves, subdue their rebellion towards you, and to know that you have all of this in control. In Jesus' name, amen.